Hello and welcome to the first ever Josias podcast. I'm your host, Joel. Joining me today will be my co-hosts, Elliot and Potter Edmund. Today we'll be discussing the common good, but before we start, I just wanted to say a brief word about the podcast and what we hope to accomplish here. This is our first one ever, as I said, so please bear with us as we try to learn the ropes. In the future, we hope to bring more podcasts to the Josias and introduce perhaps additional features and have guests on and so forth. To start with, we wanted to begin with focusing on certain basic concepts that are fundamental to our project at the Josias, but perhaps aren't completely obvious and self-explanatory to the outside world. Today, we're focusing on one of the most fundamental concepts uh, for us at the Josias, which is the common good. I hope you all enjoy the discussion. So let's talk about it. What is the common good? So the common good, uh, it seems like the initial meaning uh, that that people used the common good for um, is to distinguish it from the good of some particular faction, uh, of the ruling faction, usually. So in Aristotle's politics, for example, he will distinguish between good regimes and bad regimes uh, by the fact that the good regimes are ordered to the common good, meaning what is good for all of the citizens rather than for the particular group to which they belong, the poor or the rich or whatever. Um, And it seems like that general meaning gets carried through, but then you have uh, very profound disagreements about uh, more particularly what it is. So a uh, quick, quick uh, contextualizing question. Um, when we say the common good, I guess uh, the common good of what? Um, what? What's the body? What determines um, the level of uh, organization, uh, commonality uh, that we're, we're dealing with? with you know, you know, wh- who's good, basically? Who's good? Yeah, so there... Uh, most often it's used in a political context. So in, obviously, in the ancient Greek philosophers to talk about the city-state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's used also in other contexts. So, for example, the only time I think, actually, that Aristotle uses the exact words, uh, um, koinon agaton, which would be mm-hmm. the most literal Greek rendering of common good, is actually when he's talking about the household. In the politics, when he talks about it, he uses um, another word, which is usually translated as uh, advantage, sumferon, kone sumferon, uh, the common advantage. Um, but in any case, whenever you have... Um, a real community, a real communion among different persons, there's going to be some common good uniting them. So this is maybe a good place to ask this question, and maybe we can also table it for later. But with Aristotle, there seems to be a tension between the ethics and the politics. And the ethics 
you learn about the virtues and the moral virtues end up being, in a way, for the sake of the intellectual virtues, although in a way they're uh, good in their own right. But happiness, which is what the ethics is all about, is contemplation, right? Now, contemplation seems like a sort of solitary pursuit. Uh, politics, if we follow Plato, certainly would be a bother for the philosopher. How does, and then in Aristotle's politics, he, he talks about the advantage and, you know, the different regimes and things like that. How do you tie back in happiness of the individual, which would be contemplation, most properly, with the common advantage or the common good? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, this is uh, the big question for, for Strauss and his followers in political philosophy as well whether there's some tension between um, political and speculative philosophy. Um, but what happens in the, in the Christian tradition is that you see uh, preeminently in, in St. Augustine, in the city of God, you see an account of contemplation. And I think in a way this is implicit uh, in Plato as well and and also in Aristotle, but it's not as worked out in them. But you see, in Augustine, uh, what he works out is that contemplation is really um, the contemplation of a common good. The highest truth in which that contem the, the contemplation of which is happiness is uh, the common good of the city of God. It's God so, himself. So it ends up being that the object of contemplation is common, right? Right. Uh, so, uh, but isn't that isn't that kind of a sleight of hand? I mean, aren't aren't we switching over from talking about using the word common to mean uh, something uh, in which uh, a variety of things re receive perfection as an organic whole uh, to a sense of common as something universal that's shared by many, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, God, God is not the, uh, the perfect act of a city, right? Even the, even the heavenly city doesn't uh, achieve its, its un union uh, by doing God, right? although in a sense maybe they do. Right. In a sense they do. And this is what Augustine will try to show that um, peace, which is the, uh, he sees as being sort of the immediate activity of the city. Mm -hmm. What its uh, existence is, is peace. It's a tranquility of order. That peace um, is founded on all contemplating the same God. So that the, the order among the parts of the city, their order to each other, comes mm -hmm. from their common order towards this one superabundant good that they're all enjoying. So the, okay, so the order of the city, the heavenly city, uh, is achieved first by contemplating the, the common good, which is God, but then in contemplating uh, as, a, sort of, as a communion, you know, the saints in heaven, um, achieve an, an order uh, internal to themselves, you know, with each other, 
uh, which is itself an expression or, or a, a higher participation in in the divine essence. Is that the idea? Yeah, that that's exactly the idea. So he he spends a lot of time contrasting uh, the earthly city with the city of God, mm-hmm. and showing that the unity that the earthly city has is a false unity, um, because the goods that the earthly city pursues, uh, and here he's thinking especially of Rome as being kind of the the greatest instantiation of the earthly city, um, are goods that are what we would call in, in economic jargon rivalrous goods. Mm-hmm. The one that I have of, of honor, which is what Rome is, is all about, honor. The more that Romulus has of honor, the less Remus has. So eventually Romulus is going to murder Remus so he can have all the honor himself. So uh, at the, that is, so, so to speak, the good that's at the foundation of the city or that uh, is causing the unity of the city is also causing its disunity. So the earthly city is always, um, as it were, in conflict with itself. Mm-hmm. So I want to push a little bit more on this point because it seems to me there's two levels of the common good as there, as there will be for Thomas on uh, lots of areas. There's the natural and the supernatural, and we seem to be jumping straight to the supernatural. Yeah. But before we go there, if we think about the common good, uh, I always think of a choir first as, as my example of something that really is uh, not just achievable by many individually uh, without being diminished, but it's something that can only be achieved by a certain cooperation between people. And then the good harmony that arises is shared by them all. How does, on a natural level, happiness, uh, which you could think of as a sort of contemplation, relate to the happiness that you might think of just sort of intuitively as a common good of a village, say, like the right. well-ordered uh, 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 cooperation of people. Hold on just a second. <laughs> <laughs> you guys continue. Yeah, you common good of your household. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it does seem like in Aristotle, you get um, already in Aristotle, you get two levels of happiness, as it were. There's there's moral virtue and there's intellectual virtue. Mm-hmm. And both of them are uh, perfections of uh, human nature. Um, and happiness is, of course, the activity proper to us as human beings done with uh, done excellently that is with virtue um, and the activity that's proper to us seems to be twofold though there's this practical activity and then there's contemplation which is in some ways above our nature it's sort of a, a, a divine activity mm-hmm. um, and the two are not are not uh, they're distinguishable, but they're not completely separate. That is, both of them are perfections of the same nature. And as Joel was saying before, moral virtue is 
a presupposition to contemplation. That is, if you're if you, if you're dominated by your passions, then you're not even going to be able to uh, begin to contemplate. So that right. the practical life, in one way, is a is a preparation for the speculative life. But then, it does seem like the highest realization of the practical life is in the perfect community in the city um, where you have everyone acting together according to the highest virtue um, in civic friendship Uh, and that does seem to be more um, at that level of the practical and moral rather than at the contemplative level yeah, you see this. You see this uh, tension displayed very clearly in Plato, in the Republic, for instance. Aristotle, the tension seems to be there, but he doesn't. At least on my memory, he doesn't address it quite as directly. The tension between again, sorry, the moral uh, virtues being sort of expressed very perfectly in communal living, particularly justice, which is all about your relation with others, uh, right. either Versus, as part to part or as part to whole. Yeah. Uh, Versus speculative. Speculative, uh, right. Because you know, yeah, yeah, I yeah see we that. all remember in the Republic where the, the philosopher king would have to be dragged back. Uh, Whereas in Aristotle, you read the ethics and you sort of climb, 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 climb. And then you get this beautiful chapter at the end about how godlike and perfect uh, contemplation would be. And then, you go, and then you go to the politics. He says, but we have to talk about this more in the politics. And then the politics is all about very practical, uh, earthy considerations about how cities uh, would come to be and how they would function together. So it's always been an odd uh, uh, gap to my mind. Um, yeah, so, okay, this, this ties into a question that I had earlier, um, which is, um, so, so uh, Potter was talking about um, the, uh, in Augustine, um, how Augustine sees the, the, the peace of the earth, earthly city as a false peace, uh, right? Um, because it's based on the pursuit of, of uh, uh, competitive goods. Um, it's a sort of zero-sum game, you know, your honor is my dishonor, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so to what extent uh, in the present life can we, um, can we actually pursue um, politically or, or in, in real communities uh, the true common good of, of man or the universe in so i think of um what is it i think it's at the end of um book nine of the republic you know uh, uh one of one of the interlocutors asked socrates you know where where can you find this the Kelopolis uh, on earth i don't think i've ever heard of such a city and, and socrates says well probably it doesn't exist anywhere but you know there's there's a pattern of it laid up in heaven, and we should live as if we were citizens of that city. Um, I mean, is that is that the best we can do? Is how, how does this actually bear on on politics in the present life? Yeah, well, Augustine is um, usually read as being quite pessimistic about uh, the possibilities of politics in this life, but I would I would actually not take the 
the um, fully pessimistic reading of Augustine on this, because there are some passages where um, he suggests that there's a way in which earthly justice can be um, ordered to heavenly justice. And if you have rulers who are citizens of the heavenly city, they can uh, they can cause a, a, an earthly peace in whatever city they happen to be ruling that is in some way a participation in the peace of the heavenly city. So the heavenly city is the platonic form. You can have some image of it here uh, in the earthly city. Okay. So we talked about uh, Augustine a lot. When Aquinas uh, follows Augustine and the other people that he's following here, where are his main discussions of this? Where would you turn to find Aquinas's discussions? Well, you have, uh, he brings up the common good in many different contexts, uh, which is one of the difficulties with interpreting what he thinks about it. A classical place to look is, of course, uh, on kingship to the king of Cyprus, um, which is a, a relatively early work, and it's in a genre of mirrors of princes uh, that has very particular conventions that he follows. But you do have there uh, an account of the political common good um, laid out fairly systematically. Uh, and it's one that is indebted both to Augustine and to Aristotle. So, and there's a lot of emphasis on unity, the unity of the city or of the reign, uh, the realm, um, as being the primary intrinsic common good. So this is this is really interesting, and uh, since this is sort of an, designed to be an introduction to the common good. I thought maybe a way to explore Aquinas would be to break down what he means primarily by good and what he means by common, because it seems to me that both of these words are very uh, uh, vague or, or used in many ways, as Thomas liked to say, said in many ways. Uh, let's start with good. What, is, what does it mean to be good? Isn't it just whatever I desire? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, so, so how can there be a common good? Uh, something is good if I, uh, to play devil's advocate, something is good if I desire it. Desiring makes the good. Elliot likes Wagner. I like uh, ice cream. Potter Edmund <laughs> likes chanting the hours. These are all different things. They don't share anything. We all make them good by our will. Doesn't, doesn't it fall apart right at the good? No, no. So, so, um, uh, okay, so let's let's start with your supposition that that being desired makes something good. Well, why do we desire things? We desire them after we know them, uh, and we desire them under certain aspects uh, in which they appear to us as desirable. Um, now, no one, well, very few people. I mean, a few crazy twentieth-century French thinkers uh, would say that. Um, you invent the reasons for the desirability of things just by a pure act of will. Um, 
obviously, when you look around the world, uh, when you think about your own experience and your own habits of desire, um, there's a there's a connaturality to your appetites. You know, you 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 sort of you see something and you perceive it as fitting, or as somehow uh, satisfying to a natural impulse or uh, a tendency that needs to be fulfilled within you, uh, whether it's a, a very uh, basic uh, sort of vegetative need for sustenance or an aspiration uh, for community, for friendship. Um, so or, it ends up or, being perfective, in other words. You have yeah, some, yeah. You have some uh, aptitude or some faculty or some need, and yeah, what's but, good for you is what perfects that? That's yeah, but I think the key response to your your way of thinking, which is it's sort of an existentialist uh, way of thinking about about desire and the good, is to point out that desire is always based on apprehension, and apprehension is of a real thing in its real qualities. I mean, more or less, people can be wrong in how they they see things, but but ultimately, what it falls back on is a question about what, how things really are. So it's the priority of knowing over the will, then, is what yeah. you're pointing And a, a sign of this is that people will usually um, be honest enough to admit themselves a posteriori that they were wrong about something good right. for them. Yeah. That's interesting. It does seem to me that this is a very common mistake. That seems right, that you can't just desire things, you know, pache, tons of 19th and 20th century philosophers. You can't just desire things and make them good by that fact. Uh, but it does seem like this error, whether people always say it so so flatly and baldly as I did, uh, or have it sort of hidden as an implicit premise, does cause a lot of the errors about the good. It's sort of a fundamental point that... Yeah. Well, there's also there's an, there's a, a habit that we have nowadays of overestimating um, uh, the differences uh, that occur within a species uh, with respect to um, the perfection of individuals in the species. So you know. Um, How do you mean? Well, okay. Think about think about um, uh, children's television shows that you know, like Barney that would tell you that, you know, everyone's special, everyone has their own thing that they're good at. And, you know, you're, you're all sort of destined to discover your own perfection. Right. Well, there's something true about that, right? Uh, you know, uh, just like, like Paul says, uh, you know, we, we all have a different sort of organic role within the body of Christ, okay? Um, but you can very easily overestimate that. You can turn uh, individual... Uh, differences of aptitude into uh, specific differences. So, you know, I am this sort of person, this is good for me, this, uh, you know, this idea of human perfection applies or doesn't apply to me differently than it, than it applies or doesn't apply to you, right? So that, that way of uh, subdividing the human species into uh, different kinds each with their own proper perfections uh, leads to a lot of the contemporary errors about morality. That's really interesting, and I'd never thought of it exactly that way. But it seems to me that this is something that is almost a, a hallmark of 
modern thinking about the good. And it ties into something that Potter Edmund uh, told me about a long time ago, namely the problematic way that moderns think about authenticity. Mm. Potter, could you say a little bit about that with uh, um, sp- thinking specifically about Charles Taylor's ethics of authenticity? Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, is in a way um, the same thing, what what Taylor was talking about. He sees the root of it in uh, the romantic reaction against Enlightenment rationalism. Well, he sees many roots, but the main root is uh, a dissatisfaction with the kind of um, boring uh, standardization that rationalism leads to. And specifically the mechanization, where they once you reject formal and final causality, you're going to have a very extrinsic sort of cause and very uh, mechanized, non-teleological way of looking at the universe. Exactly, yeah. And so then uh, what you get is this idea um, that each of us has um, their own way of being human that they have to discover and Mm -hmm. that they have to be true to. Uh, And to be authentic, to be really themselves, they have to discover sort of their own their own way of being a human. Yeah, and it really does seem like this is what ends up being all sorts of modern philosophers end up talking in this way. And then today we see it with the idea of identity politics generally. You see not just identity politics, but broader than that, you see it in the world. Everyone thinks that they need to discover what who they are who they right. are. And that's not something you would, I don't think, have seen historically prior to the Enlightenment. No one was no, discovering who I am and what, what I'm supposed to be. It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense um, uh, metaphysically. I mean, so... Well, people, it makes sense to me people, because I'm actually, who I am is a penguin. <laughs> from the, uh, Antarctica. So. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so... But you think about, um, uh, okay, so the, the, the obvious analog is a seed, right? So everyone is a, is a seed. We all get planted into the, the ground of society and uh, through all of the influences and, and um, uh, social and, and material nourishment, we, we grow up into special plants, each in the garden of civilization, right? And all different, special and, you know, wonderful and Okay, whatever. Right. Uh, but the <laughs> the reality is that um, we're all human. We're you know I am not a daffodil, Joel. You are not um, a, a a bay tree. Okay, uh, we're all of the same species, and so the differences are the differences between two different bay trees, and not uh, something uh, like a, a squirrel and uh, a rose. Okay, there, there. Our differences are our differences in um, the the matter in which the, the human form is instantiated, uh, and the aptitudes that go along with that, and the the sort of developmental uh, accidents um, that accompany us through life, based on the circumstances of our coming to be in the world, and the you know the the physical form in which or the physical matter in which we we subsist. Right. Um, so, 
uh, where, where was I going with that? Um, well, you have, uh, there is one, one way in which um, it's getting at something true, I think, namely that mm -hmm. the, the uh, God in whom all creatures participate to some degree or another, the God of whom all creatures are traces, has an infinite plenitude that's not expressible in any one finite form. Yeah. And so it is true that there are going to be a, a quasi-infinite number of wonderful creatures that each uh, express some, um, some aspect, as it were, uh, although that's kind of a, a bad metaphor for it, some aspect of the divine glory. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that I think is very true, but, uh, I think what the ideal of authenticity completely leaves out is that for us as rational creatures, the highest, um, realization of ourselves, <laughs> our fulfillment comes, uh, in returning to the source from which we came not yeah. only in instantiating some particular aspect, but in returning to the fullness itself. And that's something that's, that unifies all of us, uh, that brings us to a greater unity uh, yeah. when we all generate one common good. Yeah, it leaves out entirely, it seems to me, that yes, there's a great variety of ways that you can be a human and, and be a good human, uh, but the starting place is the common nature and perfecting that nature rather yeah. than discovering for yourself or inventing for yourself, depending on, on which modern philosopher you're talking about, some nature that you can then be true to. Right. Uh, this could be an entire podcast. I want to move on really quickly <laughs> uh, in the time we have left. Uh, Potter, would you just say a few words before we turn to what common means about the difference between an intrinsic good and an extrinsic good? We often hear, or I read about this, and it's, what, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so that's a relatively simple distinction. Um, Aristotle, in, in the Metaphysics, uh, Book 12, he talks about this, that there's a good that's realized uh, among the members of a community, for example, an army. You have an order among the different uh, soldiers, and that's something good that's realized in the community itself. And then you have a good that's outside of them, but uh, which is still their goal. For example, in the case of the army, victory. So, so go ahead. So f f let's keep it on an individual. If I'm uh, practicing some good for myself, can you give me an example of an intrinsic and extrinsic good? Well, it is. Uh, the distinction does primarily refer to communities. Oh, okay. There's something, I mean, there's something analogous looking at one individual because man is a microcosm, as it were. So you can see an intrinsic good uh, of Pater Edmond would be virtue, if he had virtue. Um, <laughs> uh, and particularly, um, so for example, temperance would be an intrinsic good. It's a virtue that uh, makes... Uh, the passions of the concupiscible appetite docile to reason. Mm -hmm. There you have an order between reason and appetite 
that is an intrinsic perfection of the man. But then if he were contemplating a truth, the truth is something that's extrinsic to him. It's not realized in his uh, own being, but outside of him, and his intellect goes out to know so it. So where I was thinking is, is, wouldn't you see this like in the exercise of art? Uh, for instance, if I have the art of bridal making, the intrinsic uh, analog would be that art that I possess, the extrinsic good would be the object that I'm making. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is actually um, another distinction that St. Thomas makes a lot, which uh, actually you putting the question that way makes me realize that in a way uh, these distinctions are almost the same. Huh. Um, he, he distinguishes three uh, ways of talking about the end. Um, the end for which, the end which, and the end by which. So the end for which is the beneficiary, the one who achieves some good. So um, whoever is going to get the bridal in the end, that's the, the end for which. The person is going to enjoy that good. Mm. Then there's the end which, which is um, the bridal itself, the good that is being uh, made. And then the end by which would be the making of the bridal. Uh, including the art of making bridles, which is the the principle, the beginning of the making of that bridle. Right. Um, okay, I like to use the example of ice cream uh, for this distinction. You have <laughs> um, you have the ice cream itself. That's the the end. Which then you have the little boy who enjoys ice cream. He's the end for which, and then you have the eating of the ice cream, which is the end by which. Okay, so this is something that we could talk about. This could be, you know, a seminar in itself. Let's talk about what common means, though. Uh, common, at least in English, has kind of a low connotation, or at least for snobs such as myself. I mean, it means like vulgar, or maybe you mean the, the common man. What does right. it mean here? Isn't, uh, to play the devil's advocate again, isn't the superior, uh, the proper, the noble, So, um, <laughs> in I'm just thinking, you know, it would, <laughs> enough of this common good talk, we should have noble good talk. <laughs> where, where is the aristocratic good? Elusive good, yeah. There's the wonderful story in, in Plutarch, in Plutarch's Life of Alexander, where uh, Alexander remonstrates with Aristotle yes. for having published the metaphysics, and he says, you know, what's going to distinguish us now from the common herd if everyone knows <laughs> wonderful truth? Aristotle doesn't have a very optimistic uh, <laughs> answer, though, because Aristotle basically says, don't worry, I've written and not written, meaning, exactly. don't worry, you know, <laughs> I can't, can't possibly understand this. <laughs> Which, if we're right about what the common good is, is just a terrible answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what does so, common mean here? So, uh, one, one understanding of common uh, is the commonality that you see in speaking about things. The universality it would be another way of putting it. So, if I say Joel, I mean one particular person. But if I say man, I mean 
Joel and others as well, where I refer to their common nature. And that is something that is, um, that is less real than the particular. It's something abstracted from the particular. It's uh, a general term that is removed from the particulars. But the sense of common when we talk about the good is uh, doesn't have to do with that kind of commonality, universality in talking about something, uh, abstract universality, but it has to do with causality. The good is a cause. It's the final cause. And a universal cause or a common cause is a cause of many effects or a cause of many causes that cause many effects. Uh, most properly speaking. And that's what we're talking about um, when we say the common good. It's not common uh, in the sense of an abstract notion um, that is said of many different individual goods, Mm -hmm. but it's common in the sense that it is one good that extends its causality uh, to many. So everyone desires it and shares in it and is perfected by it, uh, but it is one cause. So that is something that is um, noble, although it is communicated uh, to many. So there's lots, there's so much here that we're kind of moving quickly along. But what I'd like to do uh, in our time left is first talk about concrete examples for the city in the natural level to tie it back to the earlier discussion of Augustine. And then finally, maybe have a brief discussion to tie back to the one we we already had about what happens in modern thought and modern philosophy, because although you'll still hear the term common good, it seems to me that modern politics has rejected the notion of the common good as any sort of fundamental uh, aim of politics or even of, of life. So... If this is what the common good is, the sort of final cause uh, and a good as perfective, when we're talking about a city, what are the, what is the common good of the city? What is, what is its intrinsic good? What's its extrinsic good? What does this mean? Well, I've, I've just been reading a really interesting book um, that maybe I'll bring in here because in a way this is what it's about. It's a book that was written in the 1930s in Germany. It came out um, in 1934, so shortly after the National Socialists uh, came to power. It's by a a German jurist called Walter Merck, and it's called Der Gedanke des Gemeinen Besten in der Deutschen Staats- und Rechtsentwicklung. So it's about the idea of the common good in the development of uh, German uh, jurisprudence uh, and the theory of the state. And it's interesting because he looks, he gives very concrete examples for how the notion of the common good is used in actual political life uh, in Germany from prehistoric times um, up until the 19th century. And it seems to me the, the point of this book is although Merck was actually a member of the Nazi party. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and in a way the book uh, ostensibly, it seems like it's a, it's a pro-Nazi book. One of the 
the point of the Nazi program, one of the 25 points of the Nazi party program was Gemeinnutz um, vor Eigennutz. So the common advantage uh, before, the pri- before private advantage. The, uh, the primacy of the common good, you could translate uh, loosely. <laughs> oh dear, is this, are we, is this a Nazi concept here? <laughs> well, this, that's the interesting thing about this book, because uh, he goes back and he, he, he shows how the, the principle of the primacy of the common good above private interest has been kind of the guiding principle of German jurisprudence from the time of the barbarian tribes uh, throughout the Middle Ages and, and so on. Um, and so uh, if you just hear that, you might think that, well, okay, he's, what, what this is going to mean is uh, a totalitarian notion of what the common good is. The common good is what benefits the German nation as a kind of hypostasized uh, mystical entity um, and it's going to crush uh, the good of individuals. Uh, it's totalitarian. Um, but what Merck actually shows is the opposite, and which is why I think that, in fact, his book is is really a uh, an esoterically anti-Nazi book. It's a, if there's ever a book that calls for a Straussian reading, it's a Merck's book here. Uh, and what he shows is that, in fact, in both an ancient uh, German law as far as it can be reconstructed, um, and in Frankish law and in medieval law. Um, the notion of the, the common good is used uh, to limit the arbitrary power of uh, the rulers, um, to limit them to serving the really the good of their subjects. Um, and particularly, he's, he sees the the... Uh, jurists see the primary um, intrinsic common good of uh, a realm or of a city as being found in justice and peace. And so the the role of the government is to defend the peace of the community against being destroyed by injustices. So that's really interesting. And I think it's something important, uh, particularly because if if you're an integralist, the question that has to be answered is, uh, are you a totalitarian of some sort? Right. Uh, and then the answer is no, but it's it's an important point to make. And I guess I'll ask it this way, once again, sort of asking the, the question as the devil's advocate, as it were. If we're thinking of the common good as a cause, so it's common in, in causality. Right. Wouldn't that common cause ultimately be the ruler, whether you consider the ruler to be a single monarch or whether you consider it to be the Politburo or, or, or whatever you want? And wouldn't that just naturally be sort of totalitarian? Everyone has to sacrifice themselves for this great cause of the state, the Volk, whatever you want. <laughs> so Thomas has... Um... This reminds me of, of uh, something in the, in the prima pars of the, of the Summa. Um, Thomas is talking about the, the, uh, the way in which the will dominates the passions in the soul. Um, and he contrasts the domination of the will uh, over, the, over the, the passions, or the other appetites, non-rational appetites, um, to the way that a ruler can dominate a city. 
uh, either by a, a political domination or by a despotic. So in other words, the way that he sees uh, the human soul being constituted is that the, the will rules uh, by harmonizing uh, with the cooperation and participation of the upper ap other appetites rather than simply by uh, you know, dispatching them willy-nilly according to uh, its own disposition. Um, so you know, the, the common good uh, in a, in a well-organized city uh, is in the same way um, it's, a, it's a harmonizing good rather than a, a tyrannical good. Right. It's kind of a platonic yeah. way of an yeah. analogizing backwards to the city from a from a sort of psychological um, thing. Anyway, yeah, I think that's a really good a really good point. You can see very clearly in the in the human soul um, that the good of the soul cannot be served by destroying the individual faculties of the soul. Mm -hmm. um, if you uh, destroy the irascible faculty that's not going to that's just going to destroy the person it's not going to perfect them and right. so the common good if it's really the perfection of the community it's going to consist in um, bringing each part to its proper perfection uh, so that they can all work together harmoniously and um, as a second step as it were you can see that in the case of the city the beneficiary of the common good is not the community as a whole, because the community as a whole doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have, it's not able to desire the good. It's not a hypostasis. The beneficiaries of the common good are the, the, the persons that make up the community. Right. They're and that's, that's a huge point, right? So it's, it's never going to be that the state is some sort of leviathan the perfection of which we seek at any cost to the citizens, you know. Right, right. So you can't have a Maoist. Uh, <laughs> a Maoist. Right. And and this also points to how this notion of the common good is distinct, not just from totalitarianism, but also from the sort of uh, extreme personalism that you find maybe in unnamed writers, French writers in the <laughs> 30s. Uh, <laughs> Unnamed French and, and maybe Polish writers. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> we don't need to name names here. Well, let's stick with the Germans because uh, to go back to Mac, this is the, the weakest thing about his book is um, he gives a very good account of the understanding of the common good uh, in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about how it was destroyed in, in early modernity with uh, absolutism. Um, and an idea of, of the raison d'etat, of the sort of the uh, reasons of state as trumping everything and uh, the rulers as imposing this disciplinary regime, this police state uh, on society and so on, and using the principle of the primacy of the common good to, to, to trample on the good of individual subjects. And then he talks about the reaction against absolutism in 18th century liberalism. And here's the, the weakest point of his book, because he quotes a bunch of obscure 18th century German liberals, but then also Kant. Um, and he, he quotes Kant, as it were, favorably, not as, as though he were in agreement with the pre-modern account of the common good, which I think is 
I mean, he doesn't explicitly say he's in agreement with the pre-moderns, but he portrays it like this as this sort of reaction against a corruption of the original German liberties uh, and sort of a return to the uh, older idea of the common good. Whereas I think that, in fact, what you get in Kant is what you were just now were calling personalism. That's interesting. There is no idea of a, of a real common good that's right. communicated between many. And the political order is purely an instrument for the sake of uh, entirely personal, um, an entirely personal life. Yeah. Right. Whereas our idea, or, or the the idea of the common good that we're advocating here, is that it's the highest good for the individual. Right. Uh, but the highest good as common. So you yeah, don't I mean, end with, up having it be a, a personal good where the state is merely instrumental in achieving it. It's the good of the individual. Yeah, there's a there's a contrast here um, of anthropologies. So you know, um, John Paul II's you know, idea of uh, of modern era errors as being grounded in false anthropologies is applicable here. So you can have a false, sorry, the, uh, my neighbors are gutting their apartment. Let me, let me move. Okay. So, uh, you can have, um, a false anthropology of the common good, uh, that's, that's based on, um, the idea of, Human beings as fundamentally antisocial, right? Um, so, for Kant, uh, human nature is it's kind of this um, protected sphere of of uh, internal ends and and respect and freedom and whatever else. Um, and so, because society will tend to violate that individual autonomy, uh, society is always sort of trying to avoid the conflict of personal freedoms, uh, where the classical view is, is that um, human relationships are perfective of the individuals in, in those relationships, or they should be, and that humans tend naturally to find their perfection uh, in communion with other persons, so right. that you can't, you can't separate the individual perfection from the perfection of a community in which um, individuals are, are parts or members, uh, right? So it's, it's that, you know, are you, do you, do you view humans as fundamentally antisocial? I mean, Kant has that famous line, uh, about, um, what is it? The, 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 the state being grounded on the, the social anti-sociability of man. Or do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, I don't remember that passage, but the the passage, another passage where this comes out, is one that Merrick quotes uh, in his book, which is where uh, Kant says the worst tyranny imaginable is a paternal state in which the ruler intends the good of his subjects. <laughs> uh, <which> is, <laughs> the diametrical opposite of uh, of uh, common good thinking, and the reason is that. Kant sees the dignity of human nature as being its autonomy. Um, so if, uh, if, if it's not the law that I am giving myself as a rational creature, but if it's someone else is giving it to me, then it's uh, contrary to my dignity. Mm -hmm. So 
where does Kant get this notion? Can we, uh, it's often helpful, I think, when talking about erroneous philosophy in particular, although probably all philosophy, to look at the sort of history of the idea. Where is this, he's surely not making this up out of thin air. He, he, what are his antecedents here in thinking that liberty, really, autonomy, uh, is the dignity of man? Well, I, I don't, I, hmm, I haven't made an extended study of this, but you can see traces of it already in Kant's idea of enlightenment, you know, the famous essay on the question, what is enlightenment, um, where he says that uh, enlightenment is um, basically, it's the ability to be a free-thinking person who, uh, uh, who sort of educates himself. Right. Um, yeah. So if that's the case, you know, what, what, what determines um, individual perfection is your ability to be the formator of your own character and destiny. Uh, there's this idea of um, not being subject to the, the unimposed order. And you can, why, is it, why would that be? Well, it's kind of natural to enlightenment thinking to have that ideal because an, a received rule, whether intellectual or moral or political, uh, is always going to be one, according to the Enlightenment thinker, that's prejudicial, uh, where the ground of the rule is not fully intelligible to the person receiving it. And so whether the, the rule is common or purely individual, um, the, the best sort of law uh, is going to be one that's grounded within the individual subject. It's going to be something that you have total, absolute access to uh, in yourself by your own thinking, right? Right. And I think uh, one, one of the sources of this um, is the Enlightenment uh, philosophy of nature. It's the, the scientific revolution. Because um, what that gives Kant is uh, an idea of external reality as being irrational. And even, um, even what's natural in, hum in, in myself is irrational. So reason has to, to achieve its dignity. It has to be independent of, um, of the natural. So you can't find perfection in fulfilling uh, some natural teleology. You have to find a way of reason sort of um, uh, conjuring, uh, conjuring its good out of itself, out of its own form. Right. I mean, you can see this even in, in Kant's epistemology and the way he grounds his understanding of natural causation, right? It, natural causation, say, you know, uh, Hume's billiard balls hitting each other on the table, uh, isn't something inherent in the the world outside the the subject? You know, the world outside the subject is completely inscrutable. Um, the causation and the, even the unity, the substance of those billiards, uh, is based on an artificial and an imposed order uh, invented by the mind. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I, I love the uh, idea of, of for Kant conjuring. Uh, uh, 
sort of the ends out of things. Before we go, and uh, maybe it's the last thing, I just want to push again on this on this point. There are certain uh, Thomas or soi disant Thomas, such as Robert George, uh, who think of the common good as an instrumental good. And isn't, to touch back on the question I, I, I asked at the very beginning, isn't there a sort of way you could say happiness on a natural level is contemplation? The state provides me with peace, which means that uh, there's not war, it means I have food, it means I have shelter, it means I can have leisure as well. And I can spend my time, contemplation famously being a solitary activity, I can spend my time out contemplating the truths. Sure, maybe I have to come together to go to school to learn things, but once I become the master, I go off, and what the state gives me is the ability to pursue this good uh, on my own. And even in lower ways of, of contemplating beauty in like a museum or something, the state provides the museum, but then everyone looking at it together, you're each having a private good. You're, you're, even though it's shareable, in a way it's, it's yours alone. Where does this, how would you respond to this, Elliot and Potter? You go first, Elliot. <laughs> oh. um, so I'm thinking of this museum scene. Uh, you know, I guess... Um, I think one of the one of the root errors here is a kind of um, pragmatism. So you know, there's the there's the Churchill quote about um, democracy is the the worst form of government except for all the rest, right? So uh, we don't we don't really want um, a regime in which the common good is just to protect people's ability uh, to pursue. Uh, spiritual or, or higher goods to whatever desire they they want. We want we want a real robust common good. We want a real polity that you know in which everyone is ordered and, and integrated well. But alas, that's impossible. So here below, the best we can do is a is a value neutral, non paternalistic uh, arrangement in which people do whatever they want, uh, and that enables. Um, the the few the elect to pursue spiritual goods um, and you know achieve salvation whatever um, so I think uh, what I can I can sympathize with that way of thinking but um, ultimately it it, uh, it opens up uh, room for a lot of, uh, sort of creeping errors and idolatries you end up um, you end up trying to protect the value neutrality of the of the public sphere um, at the expense of pursuing the private good, and you know in in morality and politics always I think it's a it's a safe principle to say that, that uh, sacrificing um, the truth and and the the principled pursuit of the good for the sake of some sort of pragmatic compromise. Uh, is going to be a mistake. It's going to end up corrupting your understanding of the principle that you're compromising. So you see that with these liberal um, uh, 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 sort of proponents of, of state neutrality um, in that in the long run, they, they end up supporting things that are uh, morally and politically abominable 
um, just because they see them as uh, representations of some sort of liberty that they want. Um, ostensibly yeah. just so that people can pursue true spiritual goods, but they're, they're defending evil for the sake of the freedom to pursue the good. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I th that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the way in which the moral virtues um, are presupposed by contemplative virtue is not just um, as a practical, uh, a well, it is practical, obviously, the moral virtues, but not just as, as it were, providing time and um, a minimum of security so that you can contemplate. The, the moral virtues um, form the soul, and they dispose the soul to make it capable of rising to the contemplation of the highest truths. So um, it's the, if you don't have um, a common life that's really ordered to the good, then it's not in fact going to be disposing you to contemplation. That would be the first thing. And the second thing would be to look at, at contemplation yourself, uh, itself. You were saying, Joel, it's famously a solitary activity. Um, and in a sense, that's true. That is, my act of, of contemplation is not your act, and it's not a common act. Um, we're not, our thought uh, is not a common action in the way that uh, us, us both rowing a boat would be a common action. Contra certain Arab philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, contra certain plausible, plausible Arabs. But uh, nevertheless, you see in when you... Um, the experience of contemplating truth and beauty is that the more you contemplate them, the more you desire to share them. So if I discover some truth, then I want to communicate it to others. I want to have friends who uh, can enjoy it with me. And in some way, um, it increases my joy to be able to share it uh, with others. That's wonderful. And that's actually exactly where I was hoping you all would go. Uh, because I, I was thinking when I asked the question of the, or it's one of the Dominican mottos, contemplata uh, alis tradere, uh, to hand down the fruits of contemplation to others. The idea being that contemplation, uh, as all acts of love are, are is a superabundant act that overflows and goes out to others and is diffusive. So, this is all the time we have for this podcast and lots of interesting ideas here that we only touched on. Uh, and I really enjoyed the conversation, guys. Thank you so much. 